From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. How you been sleeping lately, Sarah? <laughs> Any, let that one pass me by. Any, any babies in the house? Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, a special midterms episode of The Weeds. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Ellen Nelson and Sarah Clef. Hi, Matt. Hey. Hey. Woo! Special we're, weeds. Yeah, this is part of a, a series we're going to be doing through October, uh, leading up to the election day and, and the day after, looking at some of the, the big races and big themes in, in the midterm elections. And today, we're kicking this off by talking about what I think has been one of the most really noteworthy trends of 2018, which is an incredible upsurge in women running for office and, if not yet, winning elections because they haven't happened, at least winning primaries. Oh, this is a—I mean, you've been covering this sort of for months as it's played out. And, like, what what are we seeing? Partway through the primaries, I feel like political experts and pollsters and pundits were sort of looking at what are the big themes emerging out of this election. And for a while, people were sort of like— is it going to be the progressive upstarts, kind of the Bernie Sanders people winning over the the more moderates? But that quickly became eclipsed by this clear trend of women candidates running and also winning and kind of vastly outperforming their male competitors. So I feel like 2018 has become sort of the year of the woman already. And it's not not necessarily the blue wave, it's the pink wave. Yeah, so, <laughs> so actually like pick up on that a little bit, like, how do you see this cutting across political lines? Because I think, like, one thing you could see on, like, the Republican side is, like, Republican women maybe not wanting to get involved with Trump at the leadership of the party. But it sounds like you're saying, like, not necessarily the case at this well, point. Well, it isn't the important caveat that I would say that Democratic women are outperforming much more than Republican women. There have just been a lot more Democratic women running and um, winning their their primaries, winning the nominations. And I think I would have to check with uh, Vox's Republican expert, Tara Golshan, on this. But I think that there is a chance for the number of Republican women in Congress to actually shrink this year, but a massive upsurge uh, potentially in, in Democratic women in Yeah, Congress. because I think a, a number of the the most sort of vulnerable Republicans in the House are women. Mm-hmm. And you have some women retiring from some some sort of key districts. So there's there's a, a, a chance that, that they'll fall there. And I mean, it's important because 
Ella, you alluded to this, but sort of early on, I think people initially approached Democratic primaries from a sort of Bernie Hillary frame and tried to assess the races in those terms. And then it kind of felt like we were all over the map right? in terms of whether left candidates or establishment candidates were winning. And then that's what really sort of started to shine through that there was a good uh, 538 kind of looked at this, that like what were the you know, statistical correlates of winning? And it's just being a woman like very much swamped the other ones. Right. Yeah, definitely. And the other thing is with some of the – I feel like with the progressive candidates, it kind of got muddled with candidates like Stacey Abrams. You know, she sort of had, I, I believe, some ties with Clinton, but the progressive groups were kind of embracing her as their own. So there was this kind of weird overlap that kind of got into the Hillary versus Bernie candidates. But like, as you said, it's, it's just the the women the women candidates really kind of broke through that mold and have been the clear trend of 2018 so far. Right. And one of the things I think is like a little bit interesting here, like some of the women who have gotten more attention through victories like um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez like comes to mind is that often I think when you look at the political science research, women on both sides of the aisle tend to be a little bit more moderate. You usually don't. And when you think of like even like who in Congress is on either end, like in the Freedom Caucus, the Bernie Sanders sides, like usually it's men who have staked out the extremes of the party. But I think like one of the things that's been interesting to watch is I feel like I've seen female candidates you know, feeling more empowered to take on those kind of positions to, you know, with Ocasio-Cortez, with her positions on Medicare for all, on other big social policy issues, that one of the things that feels a little bit different this year is that women seem to have gotten a lot more encouragement to to actually run and, like, throw their hats in the ring and, like, go for the policies that they support, which is often the thing that seems to be lacking. Like, the reason you don't have female legislators from the research I've read, it's not that they don't win races. They actually perform pretty well once they run. The problem is always getting women to run in the first place, that women generally rate themselves as less qualified. Um, You know, I was interviewing one political scientist about this who's saying there are so many men who, like, look in the mirror and think, like, that looks like a great congressman. Women just, you know, have not gotten the message, like, they are what looks like a great congresswoman. And I think what's so different about this year is that— more women are getting that message. And, like, I think there's, like, a really big snowball effect of seeing other people do something and then thinking, like, hey, like, that's something someone like me could do as well. And I think that the interesting thing to piggyback off of that is, you know, a lot of women that I've talked to and and women candidates have said that, you know, certainly that they were spurred to run after Trump won the presidency. But it's not just, you know, the fears of what Trump's policies could do for women's health and healthcare, you know, policies pertaining to women, that's certainly part of it. But there's also just sort of this basic level at looking at Trump, who is, you know, unqualified for the position. And these women seeing him, you know, getting in, defeating a woman who was arguably the most qualified candidate in history and being like, okay, if that guy can do this, I can right. do it. And if, like, looking at the the members of Congress, male members of Congress, making ridiculous statements about, you know, this, that, and the other thing, and just kind of looking at their own male representation over the years and being like, okay, if this guy can do this, I can do this too. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely an, an irony, right? It's like Trump lowered the bar so low 
that it helped people overcome their doubts. Because as Sarah was saying, right, I mean, this has been traditionally like a major barrier to women stepping forward. You know, and if you look at it, some of the women have won tough primaries, right, like Carrie Eastman in, in Nebraska, right? There's a pretty clear case where there was a candidate who the establishment favored. He was a former House member, clearly qualified to be a House member, and establishment-friendly-ish enough that, like, Emily's List and other groups were, like, not that excited about backing an opponent to him. But Eastman, you know, who she runs a health nonprofit. I mean, it's not crazy that she would become a member of Congress, but also it's not like she had 20 years in the state Senate or something. You know, she's not a super duper duper qualified person, but qualified enough. And like she had a different set of ideas that she believed in and she went for it. Right, which hadn't been the rule previously for sort of women in, in politics. And, and she won her primary. Looks like she's down in the in the general election there. Um, but, you know, that's been the sort of biggest change, I think, is women who don't necessarily have incredible amounts of institutional support. And Ocasio-Cortez being the kind of er example of that, right, like running against a very well-entrenched incumbent, like nobody in – power politics, like, really wanted to see a left-wing challenger there. But, like, Crowley was very vulnerable. And, you know, it just took someone to run. I'm curious, Ella, you've been following a lot of these races. Do you feel like you see these candidates, like, running on, like, like an I am a woman platform or it's, like, kind of incidental? Or how do you feel like it is fitting into the political messaging that you're seeing coming out? I think kind of yes and no. I mean, I think that especially as as issues like the Brett Kavanaugh hearings this past week, you know, women who are running are kind of calling to their collective experience that they may have had, you know, being w- with with Me Too moments or dealing with sexual harassment or assault. Um, certainly when it comes to things like fighting for reproductive health rights, they, you know, say that they approach this issue as a woman, you know, people that have sort of dealt firsthand with this. I think that when I talk to women candidates running. I just was in Nevada recently talking to Jackie Rosen, a congresswoman who is running for Senate against Dean Heller in the fall. And she is not opening all of her speeches by being like, I am Jackie Rosen, a woman that would like to represent you in the Senate. She's trying to make sure that she straddles the line between highlighting her firsthand experience on some of these issues, coming to things as a mother and as a woman in issues like specifically reproductive health care, things like that. But I wouldn't say that a lot of these women, that's their their opening line. I think that they just want to let voters know that they will be good representatives <laughs> that also happen to be a woman. One thing just to like zoom out a little bit that I did want to make sure we hit is just to talk for a moment about how terribly the U.S. does internationally in terms of women's participation in politics. This is something I was writing about a little bit in like 2016, 2017. There is something called the Interparliamentary Union, which is a big association of governments and kind of keeps statistics on who gets representation. The U.S. currently ranks 104th in women's participation in elected national positions. We dropped nine spots between 2016 and 2017. And you see a lot of countries doing much, much better than us, that we usually hover around, I think, about um, 15 to 16 percent of our elected officials in Congress are female compared to a lot of other countries where a handful are at equity, a lot more are getting a lot closer to equity, that 
this is, you know, something the U.S. is struggling at at this point, is getting more women into Congress. So, Is there like a, a definitive theory of why that is? Well, I think other countries thought, you know, that's a problem. Like, we want right. more women in government and took specific policy steps to fix it. So you see, like, actually a surprising number of European countries have some kind of quota system right. that, you know, that gets more women into office. So you see a lot more proactive policymaking and, like, a recognition that, like, this is a problem that we should fix, whereas in our policymaking, we haven't really had that recognition. Well, and also— I mean, we have a more decentralized yes, party system, yeah. right? So, I mean, Republicans wouldn't want a quota system. But I bet if Democrats had a party list, they would probably adopt an internal quota system on that list. That's not how— Right. The, right? So it's like, so like, if so you it's like at, Democratic yeah. Supreme Court appointments yes. are like— running about even or women ahead in the modern era. But, like, there's no, like, central command that can say who are we going to have here. So you have an entrepreneurial system. And right. so, like, if men are more likely to be egomaniacal yes. and, like, say I should be the congressman, then, like, that's just Right. What so I think, like, Sweden is one example I've written about where in the 1970s, it was the Sweden's Liberal Party. They set a quota that 40 percent of the candidates they're going to run are going to be women. And, like, of course you end up with more women in Swedish right. government because 40 percent of the candidates are women. But, like, here the DCCC doesn't have that kind of power to say, like, OK, here's our slate of candidates all across the country and 40 percent of them are going to be Women, So I think the DCCC could do more if they wanted to, to, you know, right. set those sort of rules. If they, I think if, where there's a will, there's a way, right? Like if they decided this was an issue they cared about, they could do more. But I think you're right. Like the decentralization of American politics certainly cuts against, you know, these proactive steps that a lot of European countries have used to increase women's representation. But then what we've seen on the Democratic side this year, the sort of House— Gives you a, a hard count, right? But like a pretty broad and across the board increase in women's level of political activity. Like I know a lot of people, women who are for the first time sort of making $150 campaign contributions to candidates they read about on the internet. Like what you didn't have is a change in the mechanics of the system. The way you had in Sweden, right? Instead, what you had was like an actual surge of women participating. So, I mean, it's like it's it's quite different from the yes. mechanism that brought more women into the Swedish parliament, which wasn't like women from the grassroots stepping up and like winning contested elections. Right. That was like party leaders were trying to make a statement and adopted a rule, and then, like, the government adopted a rule, right? Whereas nothing, nobody has, like, decided, quote-unquote, in the U.S. generally or in the Democratic Party specifically that you have to put more women forward. Right, and I wonder if in a way that's, like, more powerful, like, to have, it, it's not coming from a quota system. It's coming from, like, people deciding, like, I want to run for political office and, like, voters deciding, like, this is a good person to elect into political office. It seems like a slower mechanism. Like, obviously, the U.S., has fallen behind, but I don't know if the more grassrootsness of it like almost gives it a bit more a bit more legitimacy and more encouragement of women to run to say like I didn't have to be picked. Like I can just run. Like because right. I've right. seen other people do it's this. It's certainly a better political story if it's if it's yes. driven if it's organically rather than <laughs> 
being being right. uh, told as a quota. And we also have like a sub theme, right, of more um, woman veterans. Yes. Right. Which is like an actual that's like a, a change in the pipeline. Right. Like starting earlier, you have many more military positions open to women having served in wartime is like a traditional like thing that can make you be qualified to run, right? And you wouldn't have uh, Macbeth or um, what's her name? Yeah, MJ Hagar, right? MJ Hagar and Amy McGrath, yeah. Right. It's a sort of very typical candidate backstory, but it's new that you have women who have that kind of backstory. Right. And it is interesting to me that in those two cases, I mean, at the beginning, the D-trip, you know, was was more in favor of McGrath's primary opponent, who again was, you know, sort of an older white millionaire who was the the mayor of Lexington. You know, she ended up beating him in the primary. And of course, they, they fully back her now. And sort of the same with MJ Hagar. I mean, the D-trip just wasn't really in getting involved in that particular district because it's Texas and they saw it as more difficult to win. But you know, both cases, I mean, Amy McGrath and MJ Hagar, I was talking to, you know, people that that do political advertising, and they both put out political ads highlighting their kind of unique history-making service in the military. And those ads, I think, were two of the most successful political ads in terms of the amount of money that they fundraised off, you know, ended up fundraising off of them. Those ads basically kind of launched their political careers. And it's Right. There's a reason for that. And it's interesting because it's become so one-sided, right? If you if you look at Martha McSally's positive ads in the Arizona Senate race, the Republican nominee there, it feels like like weirdly out of place because it, she has like a very 2018 Democratic House candidate story um, about her military service and fighting with the bureaucracy about exactly what combat roles women were allowed to play in. But like actually she's a Republican – Senate candidate. Um, And the trend just on the candidate level has been very one-sided, right? So it's like half of the non-incumbent Democrats running for House are women, I believe. And you look at charts of it and it's like Democrats and Republicans both like bopping along at like a low level with a slight upward trend and then just like out of nowhere, like a bajillion Democratic nominees. And Trump is obviously in some sense the reason, which is weird. It's like a weird part of Donald Trump's legacy. But so then looking ahead, like, what if a bunch of women win, right? So obviously, like, there's a lot of predictable changes if Democrats control the House rather than Republicans. But there's a strong research base that, like, I think people are a little uncomfortable saying it, but, like, it actually does make a difference. Yes, Yes, it does. And, you know, I think the thing that you see when you dive into this research is that women legislate differently and they care more about the issues that affect women. So there's a political scientist at Georgetown, Michelle Suarez, who's kind of done a lot of the research on this. And one of the things she's looked at is, like, if you just narrow down to liberal legislators, like, what is different about liberal women and liberal men? She finds, as one of her papers finds, that liberal female legislators co-sponsored an average of 10.6 bills related to women's health, which is far above the 5.3 co-sponsored by their liberal male colleagues. So you see about twice a level of engagement on women's health issues from female legislators than you do from their male counterparts. So what this suggests to me is that it's a different priority setting, that it's different interest in advancing specific policy issues. I think, you know, if that bill to advance women's health comes to the floor, you know, the other Democratic male liberal legislators, they are probably going to support it as well. But I think that question of 
will the bill come to the floor? Like, will someone actually decide this is an issue worth writing legislation around? Like, one thing that, like, feels very relevant to me right now is some of the provisions, for example, in the Affordable Care Act that are actually pretty small part of the Affordable Care Act that have to do with protections for women who are breastfeeding, which I currently am. And, you know, I would have never thought before I went through this experience about the importance of, like, providing women a place that is, like, private and clean and not a bathroom that has an outlet that you could use during the day for pumping. But I think the lived experience that a lot of women have, you know, who are members of Congress now, thought, you know what, let's get that in the Affordable Care Act. Like, let's require companies with more than 50 people to create those spaces. I just don't think that's an issue that comes up if you don't have people who have lived through that experience. And I think you see, you know, multiple examples where you see, for example, the Violence Against Women Act passing in the mid-90s after the 1992 Year of the Woman. So I think there really is something about the difference lived experience of being a woman in America and that that really affects the way that women are legislating in Congress and likely will legislate in Congress going forward. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. I mean, it also seems clear if you look at some of the differences in Brett Kavanaugh's nomination versus Clarence Thomas's or how the Al Franken situation was handled. I mean, it's difficult to prove, right? But the fact that there are many more women in the Democratic Senate caucus and that more of them are close to the upper echelons of leadership is like altering how these things are are processed, right? 
Yeah, I think definitely it is. I mean, I think you even see that in the Kavanaugh debate where you see Senators Murkowski and Collins, you know, on the Republican side are kind of two of the defining votes in part because, you know, they are the more moderate members. But, you know, like I said, most of the research suggests you do see more moderation among female legislators. But also because I think they have a different experience. I think we actually saw Senator Murkowski saying, you know, making a reference earlier this yeah. week to um, to her own experiences with sexual harassment. And I think that, right. that so, matters. Right. So on the Republican side, right, you have six women and 45 men. And of the six women, two seem to have serious doubts about Kavanaugh. And of the 45 men, one does, right? Yes. And like his nomination just would be dead if that caucus had 25 women in it, I think. Right. One other thing I think that's a little bit different, which, um, you know, might prove true with this class, is this idea that's described to me as kind of the Jill Robinson theory of high-achieving women, <laughs> kind of um, a play on Jackie Robinson, that the women who are elected to Congress tend to be exceptionally good at what they do. Whereas, um, I guess, I mean, the bluntest version of this, you see like a lot of mediocre men like putting themselves forward for Congress. Uh Really, if you're going to win as a woman, it's a lot harder. You're going to face like a lot more barriers. You're going to have to be someone who's really confident in themselves, who really, you know, has the skills to get elected. That you also see um, female legislators seem to serve their constituents better by passing legislation that actually brings more money back to their home districts. There's one other study um, from another political scientist that found that districts represented by women received an additional $49 million annually on average compared to their male-represented counterparts. And the theory here is not that women generally are better at getting things done, but the women who get elected to Congress are in some ways more effective at their jobs. They're more effective at the job of being a congressperson. So they do better at actually getting, at both getting legislation passed and bringing money back to their districts at representing their constituents. So it'll be interesting to see if something like that plays out with this election too. It'll certainly be interesting to see kind of how this plays out in the House post-2018 if Democrats do take back the House and what happens with current House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, who has announced her intention to run for Speaker of the House should Democrats win. And, you know, arguably is one of, if not the most accomplished speakers of the House during her tenure. Uh, You know, we saw the Affordable Care Act passed, the bailout of the banks, and, you know, many more things under under her watch. Certainly one of the things, as people are kind of arguing that her time is up and she needs to go. One of the things that Pelosi and um, her allies have been calling this is just sexism. <laughs> right. Here's how I, I guess how I would put it, right, is that she has benefits from the fact that her leading critics or most vocal and most visible critics have been men. Yes. And that at least until he lost his primary, it was Joe Crowley seemed like the sort of most possible alternative. I mean, you've seen in in the primaries, and and I just think, like, the mood does not exist in the Democratic Party at the moment to dump a very experienced and accomplished woman in favor of a less qualified man, even though I think there's, in many ways, a pretty compelling, like, electoral logic to we would be better off with, like, generic new person. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I think, I think realistically, a challenger would have to be another woman. Yes. And nobody like that has materialized. No, no one has stepped forward as of yet. And 
the days keep going and I feel right. like the longer <laughs> we get, <laughs> the longer we get without a, a name, the the more difficult it's going to be. And that was also, I mean, that was a big factor in the 2016 primary, right? Ultimately, is that Elizabeth Warren, who a lot of Hillary Clinton's more progressive critics had wanted to recruit as a strong challenger, like, didn't run for a mix of reasons. But, like, one thing Clinton did early on was she locked up all the women from the Democratic caucus to, like, write this letter about how, like, it's time for a woman, right? And so she she sort of rallied the concept of electing a woman president to mean electing Hillary Clinton, which then— she wound up facing a tough challenge, but then she she sort of wielded uh, gender-based arguments very effectively there. But now you have a much more open field. And, you know, Senator Warren uh, did a sort of quasi-announcement earlier this, this week in yeah. which she was, like, very much emphasizing – I mean, I guess she was, like, running on Rebecca Traister's book. But, like, you know— It was in the context of the Kavanaugh hearings, I think, that she was sort of making this announcement. Right, 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 right. But that, that, like, Kavanaugh was up there, like, yelling and screaming, and um, she's angry on behalf of whatever, the little guy. Of the women. Of women. (laughs) Of the the ladies. (laughs) (laughs) But everyone. So, So I read more political science, and I actually do, like, spend time on Capitol Hill. Like, how are you, Ella, thinking about— like, if we have this wave of women, like, what it means for the Democrats' agenda going forward. Like, let's say they do take back the House in, like, 2018. Like, when you're talking to candidates, like, where are they wanting to, like, take the policy discussion if they're the ones in control? Yeah. Well, obviously, healthcare always comes up as the number one issue. And I think that a lot of um, both candidates and also um, current members of Congress who are you know, going to be instrumental in some of these policymaking decisions next year are, you know, saying healthcare is is a women's issue. It really impacts women, and and this is something um, that we you know need to take a look at in terms of stabilizing the Affordable Care Act. Um, and you know, maybe down the road, I don't think that Medicare for all is is coming up as, as an immediate discussion for for policy in 2019, but um, certainly something that that people are keeping an eye on. Um, but the other thing is, I had a long conversation with. With Congresswoman Linda Sanchez, who is running for um, Democratic caucus chair after the elections, she kind of mentioned, in addition to health care, two things that she really wants to get accomplished are legislation to help women out with the cost of child care and also the cost of elder care. Sort of two things at two different ends of a person's life where women are kind of bearing the brunt of having to take care of children or paying to take care of children, and then also having to help out take care of their aging parents. So those are two kind of tangible things that I think, and and again, sort of, you know, might not be something that we think about as much. I mean, especially, I think child care gets talked about more than than elder care, but things that, that impact a lot of people's lives that are not super high up on the discussion list. Right. But I think, like, child care is an interesting one We um, that Weeds listeners might have heard us talk about last week, that it seems like something that sort of gets mentioned, like, here and there and feels exactly like one of those issues that doesn't get as much policy attention until there's people who have had, like, some kind of experience with it actually deciding, like, okay, like, this is the issue that I'm going to put forward and, like, this is the end. Like, we nearly had that conversation with, like, Hillary as the nominee, but obviously she did not win the election and, like, I don't know. That feels like one of those issues where there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of just like 
the actual policy idea phase? Like, what does that actually, what does that issue look like in the United States? Like, how do we actually take this idea we want childcare to be made more affordable and turn it into a piece of legislation? That definitely feels like one of those things that, like, doesn't get done unless there are very specific people saying, like, this is an important priority. Like, it is what we should be focusing on. Right. I mean, you know, there's a lot of sort of policy spade work to it. And and there's also, I mean, one place where this stuff gets tricky, right, is how do the gender aspects of these questions interact with, you know, other factors with the economy and, and, and things like that. And, you know, one way in which, like, healthcare is a women's issue, like, works very conveniently for Democrats is that, like, the government should subsidize people's health care is, like, a very rock-solid Democratic Party issue. So now you're just, like, unearthing, you know, a kind of a new dimension to it. Whereas pushing into new things like childcare, I mean, this was a, a lot of what we wound up talking about, but there's a question, right, is say, okay, well, we're going to do more to, like, help families with children. But, like, which kind of families, you know, and, like, what kind of help? And it poses a, you know, just, like, the reality that, like, some women do not have children. Some women with children are, like, very career-oriented. Others are more traditionalist. And it can be a sort of challenging to try to conceptualize, like, a policy agenda that speaks for, like, quote-unquote, Women, when it's obviously a a large set of people. women are half the population. Right? I, mean, not just, I mean, not just half the. I mean, not just numerically large, but like positioned in all the different roles that exist in American society in a different way. Like I saw, like one thing I saw, I saw people saying about like the Kavanaugh hearings was like, well, you you can't like gerrymander like women away the way you can with racial minority groups, like which is absolutely true. Um, at the same time, I think it's clear if you just like look at polls and stuff that women have more left wing views than men about gender roles, but not that much more. You know what I mean? Like, it is, like, not hard to find women in attendance at evangelical churches who very much think abortion should be illegal and that the right thing for women to do is to stay home with their children and that, like, feminists are destroying America, right? Like, and, like, what really happens is that women have more strongly held views on these kinds of questions about family life than that they're, like, uniformly on one side or another, well, I think that's one of the interesting things about, like, if we see we see a lot of women running, if we see more women in Congress as long-term, does that shift those right. views? And I could see it either way. Like, there is some research that I've looked at that suggests when you have more women in politically elected positions, it really changes how people just think about younger women. There's a really interesting study um, that was in the journal Science from India where they had this um, quota system that they rolled out in some cities and not others where one-third of elected spots were reserved for for female candidates. And the thing that was really interesting there, I mean, and we're talking about a pretty different um, setting, we're talking about rural Indian villages, is that in the places where this policy rolled out first, you saw parents thinking differently about their younger daughters, that they were less likely to say things like, you know, they thought it was the girl's job to um, keep a house when she got married. They saw girls spending more time on their homework in the villages that um, had the increase in female representation, which is really surprised me. I didn't think that's like a finding you would see. And granted, like I said, this is in rural Indian villages. So this is a pretty different setting. 
But I think that's one of the very long-term questions is, like, do those views change when you have more people in office? And I could see it going either way. You know, on the one hand, we're really just seeing, like Ella was saying, it's a lot of women running on the Democrat side. There might even be a loss of female Republican legislators in Congress. So you might just see this, you know, greater polarization. Or, you know, maybe you see kids growing up in a world where they feel like it's, like, normal to see a lot of women in Congress and that shifts their views. But I think that's a really interesting long-term question about, like, how that how this affects how we think about, like, what women do and don't do and, like, what young girls do and don't do. Right. And I think I remember you saying, you know, like, when women get elected to statewide office, then more women yeah. run. Yes. Yeah. So you see, like, these, like, knock-on effects. And when you see more – that when women get elected to statewide office, you see more women running in the next cycle. And you generally see this if you look internationally, too, that, like, as – participation rises, that you see more and more women putting themselves forward as candidate. And I think, like, it goes to something really basic of just, like, seeing yourself and your representatives and saying, you know, that's something I could do. Like, that person looks something like me, which is, you know, something women get a lot less of than men do. Mm -hmm. Or even seeing seeing like someone else, right? Like a friend or an acquaintance, right? Right. Thinking of her as someone you might encourage to run for office. Because, I mean, I think right. that— Right, yes. Because like in, in America in particular, right, like a really important hurdle that people face in running for office is that you often need to sort of raise money from your friends, right? Mm-hmm. You like eventually, you know, hope to have like a viral web ad or get party support. But like to get off the ground, you need to be able to call some people up and get them to write you money. And that means you need some rich friends and they need to like you. But they also need to like think of you as someone who could be in Congress. Right. And I I don't have the exact statistics on me right now. I was trying to look for it earlier. But there was a study um, done by the Collective PAC, which is a PAC that supports African-American candidates earlier this year, about just the the significant barriers that women of color in particular face mm-hmm. uh, when, when it comes to fundraising right. and trying to start a campaign. And it is true that, you know, for a lot of these barriers, you know, all women face these barriers, but I think that women of color in particular face even even more barriers. And we are seeing um, with candidates like Ayanna Presley, you know, gave very moving speeches about that issue of representation and making sure that all women are represented in Congress and that women of color also have someone that has, has lived their experience as well and can translate that into tangible policy for women of color. Last week, Kanye West accused one of the biggest Twitch streamers of being an industry plant. It's an idea that comes up so often on platforms like TikTok and elsewhere. You see people who have blown up seemingly overnight, and the question is, who's behind them, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Tipping the scales and pulling the lever to make them seemingly the next it thing on the internet. This week on Power User, is it even possible to create an industry plant on the internet? And if so, how? There's a lot of just, I think, like structural aspects of the American political system that are very challenging to sort of overcome or or deal with. And that's what makes the kind of 2018, like, super mobilization interesting, right? Because you can imagine one fork in which, like, this sort of role model effect takes hold and you ratchet and we look at this as like a break point that at least on the Democratic Party side – Going forward, most nominees will be women most of the time because most of the Democratic Party voters are women, right? But, like, another possibility is that the, like, Trump fever recedes somehow, right? And we, like, 
edge back. Because I feel like we all understand that, like, the unprecedented number of women running for office has something to do with Donald Trump. But, like, I don't know if I was, you know, somebody put a gun to my head and was like, how, Matt? Like, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, it's a little, I don't think it's, like, super obvious to draw A to B. And I think, like, you almost, you know, see some interesting parallels with the 1992 Year of the Women, which come out of the Anita Hill Clarence Thomas hearings. But again, like, you know, we saw that that was, you know, more than that was 16 years ago at this point. And it's not like we're at gender parity at this point. So I think one of the things, like, if I look back at 1992 and like whether this is like a, you know, turn point moment, it's kind of like we saw this jump in 1992 and then it just stalled. And maybe we see this like jump in 2018 and then it just kind of sits there for a while, which is, I guess, a more pessimistic way to look at it, that, like, if it really is just about, like, this Trump fury and, you know, I don't know, let's say we have, like, an Elizabeth Warren at the top of the ticket in 2020, maybe then it's like, you know, well, like, look, like, we did it. Like, we have our female candidate. Like, there's no need to get so angry because, like, we have Elizabeth Warren at the top of the ticket. I think it's an interesting open question. I think, like, the 1992 wave suggests to me that these things, like, don't always snowball in that role model-y Way Like sometimes you just see this moment in time that leads to a change and then things recede a little bit and it just goes back to like more of a status quo. And I think a question that, you know, remains unanswered in this is that I think coming out of the 2016, right, you see a sort of a palpable desire on the Democratic side for women candidates and a lot of interest in multiple different women potential presidential contenders, but also a sense from Hillary Clinton's camp and from a lot of her supporters that she was like done in by sexism on the campaign trail. And I think people who do not want us to take away the lesson, it was a terrible mistake to nominate a woman for president, no political party should ever do that again, sometimes seem to be saying things that kind of commit themselves to that position, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, I see what you're saying. <laughs> I see what you're saying there. That right, like it's almost like if you're going to nominate another candidate, like if you're going to nominate an Elizabeth Warren, like this is a barrier she would face that a Bernie Sanders candidate would not face. It's almost like implicit in that argument. Yeah, I mean, like if you think it's true, right? Like one, if I were to say online tomorrow, Hillary Clinton messing around with her emails really cost her a lot in the campaign. Like I promise you that somebody will be in my mentions and saying, if by email server you mean sexism, then yes, I agree. You know, and Jennifer Palmieri, who who I'd like a lot, I I used to work for and, and worked for Hillary Clinton, you know, she I think like lays this out in her book that like a lot of the criticisms that Clinton came under were in her view a form of sublimated misogyny, which I don't know. You know, I mean, I think I think there's something to some of that. One reason that until 2018, you've it's been rare to see African-American nominees for statewide office in contested elections is like Democrats fear that racism will make it hard for them to win elections. And like post-Obama, the party seems to have sort of changed its mind about that a little bit. And Stacey Abrams is polling pretty well and Andrew Gillum is polling very well in Florida. And so I think in the future, there's going to be a consensus that like Democrats should have African-American nominees when they're talented because there isn't anything to fear. That like when you have a good black candidate, like nominate that person and then they'll go win. But there's this kind of, I think – not tentativeness around nominating women because you have a lot of women nominees, but like a fear that there's huge 
barriers in their place. I mean, I think it's a fear, but also something that, like, the same group of people would want to tackle. Like, would not say, like, and this is why we should not run a female nominee. It's almost like this is why we need more female nominees to show that, like, this is what a president, this is what a congressperson actually looks like and, like, Mm -hmm. break down that fear that this is going to be some kind of drag. And, I mean, I do get what you're saying, Matt, that, like, you could frame it as— well, this would be a reason not to nominate a woman. You could also spin it as like, well, this is the absolute reason we need more women in government is to like break down those stereotypes, you know, and show that this is not actually a detriment to to being a, a candidate. And I do think that that dynamic is going to play out very much in 2020 because Trump is going to still be the Republican and he is openly sexist and misogynistic, whereas maybe past Republican or or male candidates in general, not just Republicans, were maybe kind of more subtly sexist and misogynistic. <laughs> um, so and, and certainly, you know, Liz Warren has signaled that she is interested in running in 2020. We have Kamala Harris and Kirsten Gillibrand. Um, and I think that that is an argument and a dynamic that's going to be playing out up until uh, 2020. Fantastic. I think that's a great place to, to leave it. Thanks a lot, Ella, for joining us. Thanks to our producer, Griffin Tanner. Thanks to all of you for listening. The Weeds will be back on Friday. Mm-hmm.